Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles over to Galatians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Week 2 in a new series that will carry us through the end of the year. And what I'm going to talk about this morning will have a lot of overlap to what we talked about last week. So if you weren't here last week, I want to mention that, that, that we covered not just the first five verses of this letter, but a, 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 a little taste of what the entire letter is about. Uh, we tried to set the stage for what this series will be for us in our life together as we come to God's Word and try to learn from it. So you may want to go back and listen to that one as a companion to what I'm going to say today. But, fair warning, what you'll hear there will sound a lot like what you're going to hear now. Uh, because these two paragraphs, the one from last week and the one from this week, both work together to set the stage for what we're going to cover in this wonderful letter. It's a wonderful letter. There's great beauty in it, but it's also a punchy letter. It's a letter with an edge to it. Paul, this is something I mentioned last week. I'm going to mention it again today because I think it'll set up what we're going to talk about. Normally, when the Apostle Paul wrote his letters to the churches that he was connected to, trying to pastor them from a distance. He followed some conventions of the time in how to write such a letter. There was the address that usually came. You'd say who you were. You'd say who you were writing to. You'd offer them some sort of peace. Usually his his phrase was grace to you and peace in the name of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His letters almost always start that way. And then in almost every case, the next thing that he does is give thanks for the church that he's writing to. And he'll list some of the reasons he's thankful for them. For example, in Romans chapter 1, maybe, maybe the most famous letter that he ever wrote was one to the Christians who were living in Rome. He says to them, grace to you and peace. And then he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Maybe the next famous, most famous letter that he wrote was the one to the Christians living in Ephesus. After saying grace to you and peace, Then, a little bit later, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. In his first letter to Christians living in the city of Corinth, to a church that was really messed up. I mean, that letter is full of harsh language, correcting things that were seriously wrong with the way they were doing, uh, the way they they were behaving and the way that they were thinking. Still, Paul says, grace to you and peace. And then, quote, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You get the idea. Roughly 10 of Paul's letters start like this, but not Galatians. Galatians has the grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ line. But the next thing he says in verse 6 is not I give thanks for you, but I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And from this point forward, the letter carries that tone. It's a letter with unmatched urgency among the writings of Paul. And the urgency that we see in this paragraph and that we're going to see over and over throughout the rest of the letter comes from the incredibly high stakes at getting the gospel right. That urgency drives this letter from beginning to end. And though this paragraph that we're going to consider this morning doesn't say much about what the gospel is, he's going to get there later. This one doesn't do much work to define what the gospel is that he's so worried that they hold on to. This paragraph does help us see the danger of getting the gospel wrong and what makes us vulnerable to a different gospel. So that's where we're going to focus this morning. 
I want us to focus on the danger of a different gospel, the attractiveness of a different gospel. What's going to make us subject to that danger? And how the true gospel protects us from settling for a different gospel. That's what I'd like for us to do this morning. I want to begin by reading these few verses, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. This, friends, is God's word to us from Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first thing I want us to notice from these verses is the danger of a different gospel. I actually think that's the main burden these verses carry. It's the punch they're meant to give to us straight in the face. What is Paul so concerned about here? Why is there such harsh language right out of the gate? Clearly, he's dealing with something that comes with an urgency that can't wait, that can't afford to beat around the bush, that can't even afford to like throw a nod to Thanksgiving. I mean, normally, if you're going to give someone critical feedback, you at least soften it a little bit by like, finding something you can say that will sound nice, to sort of ease it in. Paul doesn't have time for that because of the stakes that he's dealing with. He believes life and death are at stake. And the first thing to notice about this passage and the tone of urgency behind the whole letter is that the danger of a gospel that's different than the one he's given them, the danger of of a gospel different from the one Jesus gave to him is enough to cost you your life. Now, the danger of a different gospel boils down to two things. I want to unpack it and point out two different details here. Two things that define this danger of a different gospel. One is, Paul says, there's only one gospel, actually. There's only one. So that means a different gospel is no gospel at all. It's not good news. It might seem like it on the surface, but if you look deeper, it isn't. And that, friends, I think that's the clearest statement in all the texts that we're covering this morning. All these verses, the, mo- the most clear statement Paul makes is that this different gospel they're turning to isn't actually a gospel. I mean, that, he almost corrects himself, doesn't he, in verse 7. He said, you're turning to a different gospel. I can't believe it. I'm astonished. But actually, it's not even a gospel. There's no other gospel. There's only the one. What you're turning to, in other words, is not good news at all. The first danger of the gospel that they're turning to is that it doesn't have any gospel in it. So here's the second thing. A false gospel. This, one we have to, this, this second thing about the danger of a different gospel is one we have, to, we have to, to, to understand this. We do have to pull a little bit from what Paul will say later. The first danger is that there's only one gospel. So if you're turning to a different one, you're turning to something that isn't gospel. The second danger that's implied there is that a false gospel isn't a gospel because it depends on you. 
A different gospel or a false gospel is no gospel. It is not good news because it depends on you rather than the grace of Christ. And I mentioned that, that, that point comes out in the rest of the letter, not really so much here. Here Paul's focused on urgency. This, what, what he's trying to do in these verses is sort of grab them by the shoulders and shake them awake so that they recognize what's going on. They recognize the danger that they're in. He's trying to grab their attention here so he can tell them later what he really wants to tell them. That everything rests on getting the gospel right. What you can see, though, hinted in a couple of these details is what he's going to say in a lot more detail later. That what they're turning to has no grace in it. What they're turning to will depend on them. This different gospel that Paul's so worried about was an attempt to add to Jesus' work on the cross. To say that for a full and complete Christian life, you do need Jesus, but you also need the rules that are built into the law of Moses. You need those rules because they bring you into the right group. Those are the rules that get you into the people of God, Israel. And you need those rules because it's those rules, those works, to use Paul's language, that help you to please God. You have a role to play, in other words. In this different gospel, you've got something still to prove. But for Paul, what he's going to say in crystal clarity throughout this letter is that once you add to Jesus, you lose Jesus altogether. Listen to the way he talks about this in chapter 5. This is a part where he's getting into more of the details of what they wanted to add to the gospel. In chapter 5, at the very beginning of it, he talks about circumcision. That was one of the most important marks of the people of God in the Old Testament. And these people who are coming in, teaching a new gospel to the Galatians, were trying to bring that practice over with them and say it's important for all Christians to do this, not just to trust in Christ, but also to be circumcised. And listen to how Paul describes the stakes. Chapter 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, me, right here, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's either or. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Once you go down that road, where you stand before God is on you. You are severed from Christ, he says. You who would be justified by the law. Severed from him. It's either or. Now, the other clue here is I think what Paul says about what they've turned from. He says that you've deserted him who called you by his initiative, his grace. Not something, not because he answered your call. Not, not, not because you built a resume that would, that would turn his head. It wasn't your initiative. You've deserted him who called you. It started with him and him who called you in the grace of Christ. Paul's thinking of grace as the kind of habitat that you live in. It is, it is to the Christian what water is to the fish. It's your world. In the Christian life, all of it is grace. Of course, your lives change, but not as, a, not as barter that you offer to God. That's, that's the different gospel that they're hearing. Paul calls what they're, what they're turning to a distortion refers in verse 7 to those who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Behind that word is the idea of reversal, turning it inside out, getting it upside down. And this, I think, is what he means. They're getting the order wrong. No one ever had said in, from Christ or the apostles that he left in place to explain what it means to be a Christian to everyone else. No one has said that obedience doesn't matter. 
that to follow Christ means a different way of living than you would, than you would follow on your own. No one said that. What matters is the order. That first, you receive from God's hand grace upon grace upon grace, even though you don't deserve it. Even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul writes in another letter. When God's grace found you, he makes you alive. The, start, the starting point here is God's grace. And then as a result of that grace, your life begins to change. Life change comes after an experience of God's grace in the gospel. They're flipping it. They're reversing it. They're distorting it so that your changed life becomes the barter with which you get God on your side. And that's no gospel at all because that's not a bargain we'll ever be able to hold up on our end. That's why Paul says what you're turning to really isn't another gospel. There is no other good news out there except the grace of Christ into which you've been called. Now, I want to stop right here and ask you guys a couple of questions about what we've seen so far. This danger of a different gospel. There's only one. Outside of it, you're on your own. You are who you are, defined by your obedience or lack thereof before God outside of this gospel. That's the danger of it. I want to ask you a couple of questions about what we've seen so far. Here's the first question I want you you to think about. I wonder, does this seem narrow-minded to you? I mean, Paul is is obviously an exclusivist here. There is one and only one and only one gospel, period. I can easily see how that might seem narrow-minded to you. I mean, especially if you've learned from experience how wonderful the diversity of life around the world truly is. One of the most incredible things about human life in general is how wonderfully diverse it is. If you've traveled at all, not just around the world, but even around our own city, you've seen how enriching it can be to experience different styles of music and different kinds of food, different sports, different architecture. And you've seen that that difference is no threat at all. It only adds to the value of life. It only enriches us. It doesn't take anything away. And if you've come to see the diversity of the world like that, and you start paying attention to religious traditions around the world, it's a pretty short step to, to see various approaches to religion as, as pretty similar to just different cooking styles. You know, I mean, Different countries, different cultures pr- prepare meat in different ways, but they're all trying to get protein into your body. It can kind of seem like that's what's going on with religion. And there is, just to be honest, there's an undeniable similarity between what the different religions of the world teach and offer. Many of them aim at some sort of connection to the transcendent, something beyond us. Many come with moral guidelines for how we should live, and often there's a lot of overlap between those systems of morality. Many of them deal with major passages of life, things like birth and maturity and marriage and death. And, and who are we to say that their gospels are no gospels at all? Who is Paul to say that? Who is he to say that only through the gospel of Christ and Christ plus nothing else can any person be saved? Does this seem narrow-minded to you? If it does, I want to give you just two things to consider. Be happy to talk about this more afterwards, but let me for now just put two bugs in your ear, so to speak. Think about these two things. First of all, is a little bit of a challenge back at you. I mean, despite the popularity today of the notion that all religions are equally valid variations on the same theme, doing the same kind of work, 
It's like the notion of that, the, the, the popularity of that notion. The, that view is at least as narrow-minded as Paul and his gospel. Because think about this. Built into that claim that that's really what all religions are about and that they're all the same. Different ways of doing the same kind of work. Built into that claim is a claim that nearly every major religion in the world is wrong about their own exclusivity. Built into that view is, is a belief that you and others who share your view, which are mostly people who are well-educated in the West living in the last hundred years, have tapped into a truth that millions upon millions of followers of other religions all around the world today disagree with, not to mention the millions upon millions throughout the centuries. Everybody's narrow-minded about religion. And not everyone can be right. That leads me to the second thing, the second bug in your ear I want to put in there. Just think about this. You, that, that, that narrow-mindedness is, is, is not something that, that Paul alone is guilty of. It could be in your view too. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to consider is that the place to focus as you compare different religious traditions, different teachings about the world and how it works and what can be done to fix what's wrong, the, different, the place to focus is not on what they're speaking to or claiming to do, the kinds of work that they do, but what they say. Yes, there's a similarity in, 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 in purpose and content, from, or rather in purpose or goal for, from one religion to another. Often are about morality. They're often about transcendence. They're often about how to make it through major passages in life. Everybody can see that. But that's actually a pretty shallow analysis. It doesn't get beneath the surface. What we really need to do is, is look at what do they say about the world? What do they say about what's wrong with it? What do they say about how it can be made right? And stopping at the surface level similarity between religions is, makes no more sense than to, to just notice the fact that, you know what, a mosquito net... A canvas tent, a screen porch, a plywood shed, a brick house, and an underground bunker are all just different structures meant to protect you from the elements. So to each his own. It'd be crazy to say that one's better than another. They're all just protecting you from the elements after all. No, we would never say that. What we would ask is, okay, well, what elements do I need to be protected from? And, and can that method of protecting me from the elements stand up to what I'm facing? So the, the, the trick is in the details, friends. Think about how these different religions are accounting for the nature of the world, what's wrong with it, and what can be done, and you'll see that they just can't all be right. Let's evaluate them there. And what Paul is saying here, so for the purposes of this morning, the thing I want you to notice is, Paul is saying for the elements that are coming for us, it's all Jesus or it's nothing at all. Nothing else can protect us from what we're facing but the grace of Christ. And that's all to the first question I want you to consider. Does this seem narrow-minded to you? If it does, let's talk more. There's a second question, though, before we move on that I want you to consider. This is to my Christian friends here in the room, especially. The question is, is simply, what is the gospel? Could you define it? Can you tell the difference between a true and a false version of the gospel? One of the main things Paul is, is telling us here 
is that the message at the core of Christianity is not a fluid message. It's not a living tradition ever evolving. Of course, we we work to apply it to our time and our place, and we need to hear and learn different things from it in some context than others before us or in different contexts. No one denies that. But at its core, the message is not fluid. It is not evolving. It is not ours to update. Paul says if even he comes to them with a different message, he should be cursed. If an angel from heaven comes to you with a different message, let him be cursed. And what he's telling us in that is this message is fixed and immovable. So Christian, can you define what it is? It's ours to understand it, to believe it, to explain it to others, and sometimes, yeah, to tell the difference between this gospel and a counterfeit version. Can you? Galatians will help you with that. One of the most important goals for our time in Galatians is to make sure we're all able to tell true from false. And as we enter into this letter, the thing we ought to know is as someone put it, if we're not prepared to be intolerant, we are preparing for a different gospel. Meaning, if we're not prepared to be intolerant of other views of what it would take for me as a sinner to be redeemed and made right, then we're preparing for a different gospel. Which brings me to the second thing I think we're supposed to take from this passage. We've seen the danger of a different gospel, and that's the main work of the passage. That's what Paul's wanting to shake us awake to and get us ready to face. But he's also pointing us here in verse 10 to the attraction of a different gospel, to what would make a different gospel seem desirable to us. Paul says in verse 10 through these rhetorical questions that he's holding this line. He's holding on to the gospel that was given to him by Jesus because he wants God's approval and not man's. That's what he's saying. Am I now seeking the approval of man, he writes, or of God, implying course I I want God to be pleased am I trying to please man implying no I'm, I'm not not anymore I was but not anymore now he says I'm a slave of Christ a servant of Christ that means his life has one single focus what will please my master so that's the positive statement Paul's saying here I'm holding this line because I want to please God and not other people For our purposes, what I want to do, though, is flip that and say, built into that statement is a sign of what in us will draw us to another gospel. To whatever extent, what we really want is to please people. To that extent, we'll be vulnerable. A different gospel is a lot more likely than this gospel to win approval from other people. Paul goes here later in the letter. When he gets to chapter 6, he's talking about these, these other teachers who've come in trying to get these Galatian Christians to sort of update their version of Christianity to include a lot of the laws of Moses. When Paul in chapter 6 talks about them and what they're asking for, listen to the way he describes them. 
He, call, he says in verse 12 of chapter 6, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In his former days, that's exactly what drove Paul too. He know, it takes one to know one. He knows they're after something they can boast in because he was once after things that he could boast in. And in his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 3, he lists off his resume of accomplishments from his former life. Describes his life basically as a form of performance art. He's dressing to impress. That's what his life was for. So one way we might be tempted is when we want something that's going to impress people because the gospel that Paul's talking about here won't do that. Another, another kind of attraction to pleasing others comes out in chapter 2 where he's talking about an encounter he had with Peter, an apostle, one of Jesus' best friends who really wanted to be part of a specific group he was afraid of being excluded from. Chapter 2 talks about Peter who was all in line with this true gospel until some of the, some of the Jewish Christians who were insisting on new laws showed up and Peter really wanted to sit with them. And so when they showed up, he leaves those who were Gentile Christians to sit with those who were part of the group he wanted to be part of. Paul confronts him head on. You're out of line with the gospel here. You're out of step with the gospel. This is not what the true gospel is. What drew, what drew him to another gospel in that moment? It's a desire to be included. Sometimes it'll be a desire to impress. Sometimes it'll be a desire to be included. One way or another, when what we desire is the approval of other people, when what we really want is to be worshipped by them, to be looked on and desired, then this gospel is going to be an offense to those we'd really like to please. And we're going to be tempted to look elsewhere. The reality is that the gospel that I've just talked about earlier, that Paul's going to unpack in this letter, it just, it does sound ridiculous to people that have opinions that matter to me more than I wish they did. I'll just be honest about that. There are friends that, that I really do want to please for whom this gospel is foolishness. It doesn't fit their view of God because it involves a God who takes sin seriously, even personally, who gets angry, who has to punish. It doesn't fit their view of the self because this gospel claims that I'm not only dignified, I am made in God's image with dignity, but I'm not only that, I'm also sinful. I'm caught up in and guilty of the very sorts of evil that I oppose. This gospel implies that the very claim to a self-serving power that's always behind the oppression I hate, the control that I can't stand and I see it in powerful groups, the injustice that I oppose, that same claim to self-serving power is in my heart every time I do what I want because I want no matter what God has said. And this gospel doesn't fit their view of redemption either because it tells me that I need something I don't have yet, that I don't actually have everything I need inside me waiting to be tapped into that will help me to overcome any barrier imposed on me from the outside. What I need is someone from the outside to save me from myself, from the consequences of my sin. 
and that my only hope for that kind of salvation involves blood shed for me by sacrifice 2,000 years ago by a real human body that was also fully God. More than I'd like to admit, I'd very much like to please people whom this gospel, to whom this gospel makes me a fool. And if their approval is what I'm seeking, if I want to be impressive to them or included in their group, then my head's going to get turned real quick. And so will yours. So the last thing I want to say this morning is forecast a little bit about how the true gospel can protect us from a different gospel. How the true gospel protects us from a different gospel. I mean, what I've said so far is that we've got a strong incentive inside of us to move on from the only hope there is. First point of this passage is that there is only one hope, only one gospel. No other gospel is gospel. There's no good news anywhere else. And we've seen why we're going to be drawn to things that are no gospel at all. All of us are at risk. So what are we supposed to do about that? What can protect us from deserting the one who calls us into the grace of Christ? And friends, what I want you to know and what we'll spend more time in the future unpacking is that the true gospel is actually exactly what we need to be free from the force that pulls us toward a false gospel. The true gospel is tailor-made to protect us from what in us draws us to some counterfeit version. What we've said is that the drive to please other people is what makes us vulnerable to a different gospel than this one. And what I want to chew on for the last few minutes that we have together is how recognizing through the true gospel that we have pleased the one we were made to please and pleased him perfectly because of Jesus sets us free from the rat race that is chasing everybody else's approval. I just want to chew on this simple idea for a little while together. I want to, I, I want to chew on it first by just saying, well, let's just be honest with one another. I, I think we can all be honest and say, we all do this. Other people's opinions matter to us. They do, one way or another. And none of us likes that about ourselves. I don't know anyone who sees it as a good thing that they do what they do to please other people. For one thing, it's exhausting. You always have to keep working at it. You never actually get there. Now, maybe your temptation towards people-pleasing is, is about maintaining an image that other people will admire. And that's exhausting because it never sticks. You've got to keep on nursing that image, keep on tailor-making it for whoever you might happen to be around at the time, and then you've got to maintain it once it's built. Maybe you aim at people-pleasing by providing for other people's needs. But people are fickle. People are needy. People's memories aren't that great. They're prone to see the worst in you from time to time. And quickly, you can feel like you're just pouring your life into a glass that has no bottom. It's exhausting to chase the approval of other people. For another thing, it can poison your relationships with your friends. So let's say you're one of the chameleon type people pleasers. The type who's good at reading a room and intuitively understanding what other people want and giving it to them. Adapting all things to all people. Guess what? Let me tell you from experience. People figure that out at some point and then they don't trust you. 
Or maybe you're on the other end of what a people pleaser looks like and, and you, you kind of hold steady. You're not changing context to context, but you really want people to see why the way you do things is better. You want them to be pleased with your way and to fall in line behind it. Well, at some point, they're going to recognize that and it'll wear them out and it'll push them away. One way or another, trying to recruit worshipers to yourself poisons your friendships. It just does. And at some level, besides the exhaustion from it and besides the terrible effect that it has on your friendships, when you live for the approval of other people, when your view of yourself is tied to how other people view you, you're just never going to really know who you are. You're going to lack focus. A better word for it is integrity. You're going to lack an integrity that you're going to wish that you had. And those are high costs to pay. The high costs are why some people will tell you that you should just try not to please people anymore. Just forget what people think. You be you. I think if, we, if you try that for very long, you realize that's not realistic either. And there's nobody out there who can just be self-satisfied all the time. And in fact, is there anything... I, I can't think of anything more self-centered than trying to recruit everybody else as worshipers of you than to be a self-satisfied, content, self-worshipper that really doesn't care what anybody else thinks. That's the only thing more self-centered than trying to get everybody on your side worshiping you. It just doesn't work. So the gospel comes in and says, well, the main reason you're always looking for approval from somebody outside of yourself is that you were made to seek approval from somebody outside of yourself. That's just built into, hardwired into who you are. You weren't made to be an end in yourself. You were created for a purpose that's glorious and joyful and life-affirming. And that purpose is the gaze of someone outside of you looking on you with pleasure. You want it so bad and can't shake that habit because it's built into you. The problem is that so long as the someone else we live before whose gaze of approval is what determines who we are so long as that someone else is some other person, some other human, the gospel is always going to be tough for us to embrace. Now, if the affirmation we were hardwired to crave is the affirmation of the God who made us, the one who put his image on us, the one who created us for his own glory, well, then, when we see this gospel, it becomes the sweet relief we've been craving all along. The only thing that will satisfy that hunger that eats away at our core. This gospel and only this gospel can satisfy the hunger that would otherwise drive us to pleasing people and away from the grace of Christ. Because here's the promise of this gospel, friends. Not just that you can be forgiven despite what you have done, but that in Christ you are also righteous. That word means worthy. That word means pleasing to the God who looks on you and sees everything that Jesus is applied to you. The promise of the gospel is that you get to please God once and for all. 
Not because of how awesome you are, but because of how awesome Jesus is. And you live, remember, verse 6, you live in his grace. That's your habitite. Habit. How does that look? Look at Paul in Philippians 3. Look at this. Listen to the way Paul describes his own testimony in Philippians chapter 3. I think it'll sound familiar to you. He talks about his former life. Picking up in verse 4 of chapter 3 in Philippians, he says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Let me give you my resume. Circumcised on the eighth day. Check. Of the people of Israel. Check. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He was included in all the right groups. Pleasing to those who belonged. Now listen to how impressive he was. As to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. That's someone who's really, really into the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. There's his resume. Impressive. Included. Checking all the right boxes. But, he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? He's giving up what all of us tend to live for. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul gives it all up for a righteousness that can be his and not because he earned it, but because God gave it to him. It's God's pleasure in him. A gift through the grace of Jesus that gives Paul what he needs to count everything else as loss. What does that mean for the life he lives now? What would it mean for your life? If you could count on being pleasing to God and no longer look around for your marching orders, it would mean you get to enjoy the wonderfully clarifying integrity that Paul speaks to in verse 10. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I'm not trying to please man anymore. I'm a servant of Christ. And that means everything that comes to me, I ask of it one question. Will this please my master who's pleased with me? It's a wonderfully clarified focus. No more plate spinning in his relationships. Trying to keep that person pleased. All right, but now I'm going to run over here. But oh, now this one's, I'm spinning this one over here. But now this one's slowing down. I've got to get back over here. Now I've got one back here. No more plate spinning. He's not running around from relationship to relationship trying to keep everybody happy. What would please my master who's pleased with me? That's his only question. He's got just one audience and he knows where he stands with him. One of my favorite illustrations of the freedom that comes with this gospel perspective 
comes out of a, a book called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn. I've mentioned that book and I've also mentioned this example a couple times already, so sorry. But it works really well here. He talks about the fact that in the American Idol uh, finale, after the person who wins American Idol gets crowned as victor, they sing. There's some sort of special call out, I don't know. I don't know how they choose the song, but they sing. Up until, up until this point, every song, they've been competing. Every song was meant to please those judges and the people at home who were waiting to text in their verdict. Not anymore. Now they've been crowned. The pressure's off. And yet they still sing. Why? They sing for freedom and joy in the pleasure of those who have already crowned them. Because it pleases those who have already crowned them. You don't ask, did you like that? How was that? Was that good enough? You only ask, what do you want me to sing? I'll sing anything. That's the freedom of the gospel that Paul has come to know. When everything else is lost, rubbish, before the value of knowing Christ and being found in him. And that's the freedom that Galatians can lead you to as we walk together through its message. I want to pray that God will help us and bring us into a deeper connection to, a deeper trust in this gospel. Father, this freedom sounds wonderful to us. We know there's much in us that resists it. Even now, even, even now, even having heard what we've heard, even, even hopefully having been stirred by this message to want more of this gospel freedom in our lives, we know that there is much in us that holds us back. We pray to you that you would give us what we need to resist what pulls us to other, other eyes, towards other gazes, other approvals. That through this gospel, you would remind us that we already have the approval that matters and that it is enough. And we pray that from joy in your approval, we would live lives that please you. Not from fear or guilt or pride. But from the freedom for which Christ has made us free. We pray for this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.